Eco Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. Eco Report is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana and financially supported by listeners like you. Hello and welcome to Eco Report. For WFHB, I'm Patrick Callanan. And I'm Sarah Callanan. For our feature today, we will hear IER reporter Enrique Sands talk about a wetlands deregulation bill. That's coming up later in the program, but first your environmental headlines. With the advent of stronger storms from the climate crisis, the Ohio River is expected to breach its banks and flood the surrounding area more frequently. A new park in southern Indiana will make the most of the flooding instead of shutting down during it. The River Heritage Conservancy is striving to change 600 acres along the river into a connected green space to be called Origin Park. The Conservancy's Scott Martin said of the project, quote, Our pivot is, okay, lean into climate change, lean into a wetter landscape. We want to be the park that people visit in flood, end quote. The idea behind the park is novel. During dry weather, biking and walking will take place along the river's edge. During a flood, it will be possible to travel through the flooded woods with kayaks and paddle boards. Above will be connected elevated pathways that will allow cyclists and pedestrians to move along them. Quote, but suddenly they will be over the top of water that will have paddlers in it, end quote, said Martin. The Conservancy has raised $10 million for the project so far and has obtained 300 acres toward it. The whole park will require about 20 years to complete. WFYI reports that environmentalists hope the state will extend net metering rates for solar before time runs out. Net metering gives people with solar panels credits for any excess energy that they deliver to the grid. Four years ago, Indiana passed a law to slowly decrease the amount solar customers get for energy they generate, from the higher retail rate to the lower wholesale rate. Solar advocates say the law makes solar less affordable for homeowners and stifles job growth in the state's solar industry. Tim Phelps is with the Indiana Conservative Alliance for Energy. He said Hoosiers should be able to receive a fair market value for the power they generate. Quote, in a state where conservatives have enormous majorities, it should be easy for us to come to them with a pro-free market, pro-energy choice argument, end quote, Phelps said. Denise Abdul-Rahman is with the Indiana NAACP's Environmental Climate Justice Program. The NAACP created a solar job training program and helped fund the installation of solar panels on a community center in Evansville this year. Indiana has a goal of having 10% of the state powered by clean energy by 2025, but Abdul Rahman said that standard should be 25% clean energy by 2025. 
and it should be mandatory. Indiana is one of only seven states that has a voluntary renewable portfolio standard. A story in the Indy Star says that ash from Indiana's coal-burning power plants is contaminating groundwater across the state, rendering it unsafe to drink. But unlike some other states, Indiana is not requiring utility companies to remove the toxic ash from leaky pits. Indiana has more than 80 pits holding the cancer-causing coal byproduct. That's more than any other state in America. The vast majority of the pits are unlined, in contact with groundwater, and at risk of being washed into rivers or streams because they sit in floodplains. They've already rendered the groundwater around 14 of 15 power plants across the state no longer safe enough for drinking water, according to the latest monitoring data. Other states are making power companies dig up their coal ash and move it into dry, lined landfills where it can no longer pollute. Those states include North Carolina and Tennessee, where huge coal ash spills have resulted in environmental disasters. Indiana has already seen some major spills of its own, but regulators and policymakers here are taking a different approach, letting much of the coal ash stay right where it is for decades to come. Indiana's environmental agency has started to approve plans that would let utilities close their ash pits by putting a cap over them and leaving the ash in place, rather than excavating the pits and moving the ash to lined landfills outside of flood zones. The Indiana Department of Environmental Management told the Indy Star that any plans for closing ash pits that it approves are in compliance with all state and federal regulations and are protective of human health and the environment. But environmentalists and some community members from around the sites are left wondering why Indiana says it's safe when other states have decided it isn't. The Pharaoh's Tribune, a newspaper in Logansport, reported that the first of NIPSCO's two Indiana-based wind projects, Rosewater Wind and Jordan Creek Wind, went into operation February 1st. EcoReport carried this story last week. NIPSCO stands for Northern Indiana Public Service Company. The wind farms are part of NIPSCO's 2018 Your Energy, Your Future plan to be 100% coal-free by 2028 through a combination of cleaner energy sources, which include natural gas and hydroelectric generation. NIPSCO officials believe it will save customers $4 billion over the long term. Coming projects and their completion dates are Indiana Crossroads Wind Farm, 300 megawatts of wind in White County, Dunn's Bridge Solar One, 265 megawatts of solar in Jasper County by 2022, Brickyard Solar, 200 megawatts of solar, Boone County, 2022, Greensboro Solar, 100 megawatts of solar and 30 megawatts of battery storage in Henry County, 2022. Dunn's Bridge Solar 2, 435 megawatts of solar and 75 megawatts of battery storage in Jasper County by 2023. Cavalry Solar, 200 megawatts of solar and 60 megawatts of battery storage, White County in 2023. Gibson Solar, 280 megawatts of solar in Gibson County, 2023.
Overuse of antibiotics makes them lose effectiveness as infections become more resistant to them. Yet the EPA under Trump approved the medically essential antibiotic streptomycin used to treat TB for spraying on orange and grapefruit. An estimated 650,000 pounds of streptomycin will be sprayed in Florida alone. Thus, EPA approved the use of the largest amount of medically important antibiotics in the history of U.S. agriculture. The citrus industry wants to use streptomycin to suppress citrus greening disease spread by a tiny insect called the Asian citrus psyllid and leading to stunted citrus crops with decreased yields. However, spraying antibiotics won't cure the infection. Countries that don't allow antibiotic residue in citrus production have found sustainable ways to combat citrus greening disease, such as replanting and tenting the new trees and pest management techniques that stop the disease at its source. Streptomycin is so critical in treating TB that Brazil and the European Union have banned it for agricultural use. Before COVID-19, TB was the world's deadliest infectious disease, killing 1.42 million people in 2019. Not satisfied with sacrificing streptomycin to the citrus industry, EPA also reapproved a highly poisonous pesticide, aldicarb, for spraying on citrus trees. Banned in over 100 countries, aldicarb, a nerve toxin, harms birds, fish, humans, and other mammals. Anyone who eats just a tiny amount of aldicarb's residue risks such symptoms as tremors, blurred vision, and nausea. According to a new study by researchers in the UK and at Harvard University, in 2018, an estimated 8.7 million people died prematurely from exposure to pollution from fossil fuels. That's about 18% of total worldwide deaths that year and almost double previous estimates. The culprit is particulate matter that the combination of such fossil fuels and coal and oil releases. Particulate matter was established long ago to have effects on health. Exposure to it has been linked to heart attacks, asthma, and poor respiratory health. Eloise Murray, a co-author of the study, said, quote, We initially were very hesitant when we obtained the results because they were astounding, but we are discovering more and more about the impact of pollution. It's pervasive. The more we look for impacts, the more we find, end quote. Most of the pollution deaths occur in East Asia, with China in the lead. After East Asia, Europe, Canada, and the U.S. account for the largest number of population-related deaths each year. Bill McKibben, world-renowned climate activist and founder of 350.org, commented, quote, There's a vaccine for the eight 0.7 million deaths caused each year by air pollution from fossil fuels. That vaccine is called solar panels and wind turbines. End quote. According to EcoWatch, an analysis by the Union of Concerned Scientists reveals that federal agencies like the Environmental Protection Agency and Fish and Wildlife Service have lost hundreds of scientists since 2017. Since the birth of the National Academies of Sciences more than 150 years ago, U.S. federal science has fueled many of the nation's and the world's great achievements. Federally funded scientists have mapped the human genome, created the World Wide Web, protected species from extinction, and saved countless lives through revolutionary vaccine campaigns against polio and smallpox in years past, and today against COVID-19. 
At the heart of these triumphs stand the government scientists, whether chemist or physician, economist or engineer, each has dedicated his or her career to the American public and its interests, clean air and water, safe homes, a healthy future for all. But attacks have happened to government science. Especially since 2017, political officials have stunted or stalled scientific research, retaliated against scientists, weakened science advisory committees, left scientific positions vacant, and undermined career staff. Some federal offices, battered by political attacks, have hemorrhaged scientific experts. Now that the sun has set on the Trump administration, questions remain. How have federal scientists fared in the last four years? How many work in government today? And how can the Biden administration repair what was broken? The results show that in the last four years, five of the seven agencies analyzed collectively lost more than a thousand scientists. Years will be required to hire people with scientific backgrounds and replace hires with no science training. Former Michigan Governor Jennifer Granholm is expected to refocus the Department of Energy on climate change if she's confirmed as the next Secretary of Energy. In a confirmation hearing before the Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee, Granholm echoed President Biden's emphasis on new jobs created through achieving his goal of net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. Quote, I am obsessed with creating good-paying jobs in America, end quote, Granholm said in her opening statement. She cited her time as Michigan's governor when two of the largest automakers had declared bankruptcy amid the Great Recession. She worked with the Obama administration on a bailout package that encouraged them to turn to cleaner technologies such as electric vehicles. Several times during the hearing, Granholm mentioned that she drives a Chevy Bolt EV and praised the car's acceleration. Environmental groups generally support Granholm's nomination and look forward to the agency's improving energy efficiency standards for everything from light bulbs to stoves and furnaces. Former President Donald Trump made it a personal crusade to weaken such standards, even targeting showerheads in his last days in office. Granholm will also be inheriting a backlog of work and a shortage of career staff resulting from the Trump administration's effort to erode the department's clean energy activities, said Arjun Krishnaswamy, policy analyst at Natural Resources Defense Council. If confirmed, Granholm would have a big effect quickly on the department. Krishnaswamy said there's about $40 billion available for loans and loan guarantees to promote clean energy technologies. That's money the Trump administration, for the most part, chose not to spend. Some conservatives seek to sow doubt about these programs. Republicans argue that what they're most likely to get are more green bankruptcies like Solonidra and Fisker Automotive. But that Obama-era program also has big successes that critics don't mention. Tesla received a $465 million loan in 2010 and repaid it in 2013. The EV manufacturer has become the most valuable U.S. carmaker in history. Mexico has banned the wood preservative pentachlorophenol, commonly known as Penta, and Canada is considering the same. In all, 186 countries have banned Penta. Environmentalists are hoping the U.S. will soon follow suit. 
Penta is used on utility poles and railroad ties to pressure treat the wood with the goal of prolonging its use. It's highly carcinogenic, containing dioxin, furans, and hexachlorobenzene. Acute exposure to pentatreated products through contact or inhalation can result in severe irritation. Chronic risks include damage to organs like the liver and kidney, as well as impacts on the immune, nervous, and endocrine systems. The EPA estimates that at least 1 in 1,000 workers is likely to develop cancer during his or her career at a penta production plant. Penta carries a potential risk to terrestrial vertebrates and aquatic organisms as well as to humans. For a short time, Canada's Pest Management Regulatory Agency is accepting comments on a proposal to ban all uses of Penta in that country. Canada is a signatory to the Stockholm Convention on Persistent Organic Pollutants, which voted 90-2 to to ban Penta in 2015. The U.S. is not a signatory to the Stockholm Convention and still allows the use of penta on wood that's subject to decay or insect infestation, including supporting structures in contact with the soil in barns, stables, and similar sites. With Mexico set to close one of the world's last penta production plants, a chemical company tried to make Orangeburg, South Carolina, a majority black community, the new center of penta manufacturing. The company dropped its plans after lawmakers protested and a newspaper printed an expose. About 250 Superfund sites throughout the U.S. are so designated because penta production plants were previously located on them. There have been five mass extinction events on Earth prior to the appearance of humans. The processes causing four of the five events are widely agreed upon in the scientific community, but the worst extinction event has been debated for years. There is a new study that attempts to resolve the causes of the event. Scientists from Scotland's University of St. Andrews and two major German research centers have, for the first time, determined a conclusive picture of the initial trigger and subsequent processes responsible for Earth's biggest mass extinction. The answer? Massive amounts of carbon dioxide spewed into the atmosphere from a volcanic eruption. Quote, We are dealing with the cascading catastrophe in which the rise of CO2 in the atmosphere set off a chain of events that successively extinguished almost all life in the seas. End quote. Study lead author Dr. Hannah Jurikova told The Independent. The study, published in Nature Geoscience sought to understand the mechanisms behind the event known as the Great Dying. This was a period around 252 million years ago between the Permian and Triassic epochs in which 95% of marine species were wiped out within tens of thousands of years. It is the closest life on Earth has come to total extinction. Scientists have advanced many theories for what caused this turn of events, including a release of methane from the seafloor and volcanic activity. But this is the first time a group has determined the exact cause. The mass extinction started with massive volcanic eruptions in an area commonly known as the Siberian Traps, releasing huge amounts of CO2. The amount of CO2 released was many times greater than than is being released today by the burning of fossil fuels. The report did not specify whether the CO2 came from magna passing through limestone, coal, or oil deposits. 
The CO2 in the atmosphere caused acid rain, which acidified the oceans and stopped the mechanism by which shells and skeletons are made. The researchers were able to assess pH levels in the ocean based on the different isotopes of boron in fossilized shells. Because atmospheric pH levels are tightly linked to atmospheric carbon dioxide, the team could then create a model of the atmosphere at that time. Recovery from the great dying required more than 10 million years. And now for our feature, we'll hear IER reporter Enrique Sands talk about a wetlands deregulation bill. A controversial bill targeting state protections for Indiana's wetlands passed the Senate and is now being considered in the Indiana House of Representatives. Senate Bill 389 seeks to repeal all state protections for Indiana's diminished wetlands, despite bipartisan opposition in the Senate and even from the state's departments of natural resources and environmental management. Although one of the bill's main authors, Senator Chris Garten, said it would have zero impact on the state's water quality, Indiana Governor Eric Holcomb, who could have the final say on the bill becoming law, says he has some concerns. In a written statement, Holcomb told the Indiana Environmental Reporter that he has some reservations about the bill in its current form. He said, quote, Despite the struggles of the pandemic, Indiana's economy is showing signs of progress, including strong growth in single-family home builds. We want to build on that momentum, not slow it down by turning the process over to a slow-moving federal program. I share the concerns of the Indiana Department of Natural Resources and Indiana Department of Environmental Management. We need to be confident that any changes in the law avoid harming drinking water quality, increasing the potential for flooding, or hurting the wildlife habitats used by our anglers and hunters. This administration will continue to work with lawmakers to address these concerns throughout the rest of this legislative session." End quote. Wetlands trap and slowly release water, filtering it through sediment and vegetation before it reaches surface and groundwater systems. They can reduce or prevent flooding and are home to many species of wildlife. The state has lost 4.7 million acres of wetlands to development since 1780. Only 15% of the state's wetlands remain. The Navigable Water Protections Rule of April 2020 narrowed the definition of waterways that fall under federal protection. Certain wetlands with only temporary connection to perennial bodies of water, known as isolated wetlands, now fall under state jurisdiction. Here's what Senator Garden had to say about the bill. Let me be clear about what this bill does not do. It does not in any way impact or hinder the federal regulations of wetlands in Indiana. Under Section 401 of the Federal Clean Water Act, a certification is still required by IDEM, excuse me, from IDEM, demonstrating that whatever work is being completed in a jurisdictional wetland will not degrade or otherwise violate the state's water quality standards. Simply put, any action that would have any impact on water quality in the state of Indiana is under the jurisdiction of the federal government. This bill has zero gauge and zero effect on drinking water or water quality. SB 389 would repeal all state protections of state wetlands put in place by Republicans in 2003. The bill supporters said SB 389 would remove burdensome regulations targeting farmers and land developers. The bill's main authors all have ties to the land development and housing industry. Garten is owner of Signature Countertops, Inc. in Jeffersonville. Senator Mark Mesmer is co-owner of Mesmer Mechanical, Inc., a plumbing, heating, and cooling company. And Senator Linda Rogers is owner of Nugent Builders in Granger. Garden said he and the bill's authors had not consulted with Governor Eric Holcomb about the far-reaching legislation, despite the Indiana Department of Environmental Management and Department of Natural Resources coming out against the bill. IDEM and DNR testified against the bill when it was introduced to the Senate Environmental Affairs Committee, saying it would take away the state's ability to protect Indiana wetlands and undermine years of work in flood prevention and water quality efforts. Senator Susan Glick, chair of the Senate Natural Resources Committee, said 
She opposed the bill because it destroyed what Hoosiers had accomplished in the past and removed rights and privileges because some people did not approve of how regulations were imposed. This is serious business. This is clean water. This is a filtration system that is developed because with wetlands we have the ability to take water that has somehow been, been polluted or at least saturated with things like fertilizer or animal excrement or human excrement or whatever it has to be and we can clean it up. We can make our rivers and our lakes pristine. We can use them for recreational purposes. We can drink the water in Indiana, and we don't have the problems that many other states are faced with. Yes, these are small areas. Some of them are just wet spots in the field. And I agree, Senator Garten, these are a problem. But they're not a problem that we solve by dissolving wetlands and allowing them to be destroyed. If we have a problem, we go to the source. We work out the regulations. We take over, we go to the State Department. If we think we're being over-regulated, then we assume the fact that if there's over-regulation, that that can be changed. We meet with the individuals who are involved or the agencies that are involved. We don't destroy the method by which we protect the people of this state. SB 389 is now headed to the Indiana House of Representatives for consideration. For Eco Report, I'm Sarah Callanan. And I'm Patrick Callanan. And now for our events calendar. McCormick's Creek State Park will host a winter bird walk on Saturday, February 20th from 10 to 10.45 a.m. Meet in front of the Canyon Inn to find some of your favorite feathered friends. Bring a pair of binoculars and dress accordingly. The Goose Pond Fish and Wildlife Area is hosting a Sandhill Crane Viewing Day on Saturday, February 27th from 9 to 11 a.m. Meet at the Visitor Center to watch one of North America's greatest migration spectacles. You will attend a brief presentation, then carpool to a nearby area to view flocks of cranes. Registration is required. To register, go to sandhillcranes underscore goosepond underscore feb27.eventbrite.com. Face masks and social distancing are required. A full snow moon hike is scheduled at Spring Mill State Park on Saturday, February 27th from 7 to 7.45 p.m. Join Anthony for a one-mile, partially rugged, moonlit hike to learn the history and folklore of the full snow moon. Registration is required at sbelt at dnr.in.gov or call 812-849-3534. A new hiking club has been started by the Monroe County Public Library that gives people the experience of hiking area trails by sharing photos, sketches, and recordings taken while outside walking the woods and fields in winter. The Winter Hiking Club plans to discuss the hikes by Zoom. The next discussion will be on March 14th about the Bean Blossom Nature Preserve. If you are interested in participating after hiking the trail, you can register at mcpl.info. With all the cold weather and snow, it's hard to believe that Earth Day is not too far off in the future. To honor Earth Day in 2021, the public has the opportunity to get compost bins and rain barrels through the Monroe County Solid Waste Management District and the City of Bloomington. There is a charge for the bins and barrels. 
go to www.gogreendistrictorders.com to order by April 15th. Both practices help with stormwater management, increasing water quality, and reducing erosion. And that wraps up our show for this week. Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's headlines were written by Norm Holy and Linda Green. Today's feature was produced by IER reporter Enrique Sands. David Lyman wrote the script, and Linda Green and Patrick Callanan edited it. Juliana Daly compiled the events. Patrick Callanan produced and engineered today's show. For WFHB, I'm Patrick Callanan. And I'm Sarah Callanan. And this is Eco Report.